0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hidden Histories. I met up with Hallie Rubenhold, the critically acclaimed author, social historian, broadcaster and historical consultant for TV and film, to talk about Covent Garden Ladies. In 2005, she published her book, The Covent Garden Ladies, which brought public attention to the true story of Harris's List. Since its publication, her history of this notorious guidebook to Georgian London's prostitutes, along with her edited compendium of the Harris's list of Covent Garden ladies, has succeeded in capturing the imagination of millions. Hallie's work has been the subject of several art exhibitions, three TV programmes, which includes the hit drama series Harlots, and even lines of jewellery, notepads and fridge magnets. Yes, fridge magnets. In 2006, the BBC4 broadcast The Harlot's Handbook, a documentary based on Hallie's book, which she presented. And I am so honoured that she has come to talk all about it on Hidden Histories. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Hidden Histories. I am very, very excited to have you on the podcast. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Good. So, you are the author of The Covent Garden Ladies. And this is such an interesting topic. We are actually sat in the middle of Covent Garden as part of Hidden Histories being the thing In a coffee house, In a coffee house, exactly. So, the, this was an area that was populated with coffee houses all over the shop. Yes.
2: Yes. Coffee houses, taverns. Okay. Things called banyos, which were uh, bathhouses where you could go for a bit of entertainment. And Of course, you know, one of the reasons everything was congregated around this area was because of the theatres. And people came here for entertainment. And they came here for um, drink afterwards. They like carousing with other people, uh, men and women. Um, you know, it was as much about the company as it was about what could happen when you met the right person and you know, Eros shot his arrow,
1: as they would <laughs> say in the 18th century. Okay, so we're going to talk about prostitution in the 18th and 19th century, and particularly prostitution in London. We're going to go on a little tour, pretty much the route that the prostitutes would actually have followed in the 18th and 19th centuries in order to pick up men during during their working hours. In in the
2: 19th century. Mm. So we'll be looking we'll be looking for. At Covent Garden and how prostitution evolved here in Covent Garden as the centre of prostitution and also how it, it spread out through London in the 18th century and then how it started to relocate
1: really to the Haymarket, Regent Street, Leicester Square in the 19th century. Okay, so we're sat just off Covent Garden Piazza. Now, let's begin in the 18th century. So the scene I'm thinking is molehackabout, gets off her cart in Hogarth's um, yes. famous print. And so that, and that's obviously called Harlot's Progress. So why did prostitution rise in Covent Garden in particular? Well, Covent Garden
2: traditionally was the centre of, of trade. So there was a big fruit market here, fruit and veg market, which was here until fairly recently. So when you go into Covent Garden proper, and you'll see the the market arches at the centre, those were built much later in the 1830s but they replaced what was an open market. So people used to congregate here anyway, but it also helped that you had two theatres here. You had Drury Lane and you had uh, the Theatre Royal, and where you have theatres you have a certain amount of licentiousness and people go to have a good time. And After well, during the restoration, women were allowed on the stage. And this was kind of new and a little bit risque. And it was largely believed that a woman who was open to displaying herself on stage was kind of open in other ways, you know, because the concept of display, you know, a a decent woman did not publicly display herself. And so you see the intersection between theatre and what becomes prostitution, or kind of women making themselves available. So what happens is, you know, people go to the theatre, they have a good time, they want they want drinks, they want food, you know, and there's a reason why we talk about wine, women, and song all together, isn't there? Yeah, you yeah. You know, so, you know, with the missing thing from this equation, so we've got song, we've got wine, we've got food, well, men are going to want women. Yeah. And so, naturally the whole sex industry
1: grew up around
2: the
1: theatres and so places where people could drink, so for example um, you've mentioned to me Shakespeare's Tavern yes, the Shakespeare's Head the Shakespeare's Head, Okay, so obviously on the back of being in the theatre district Um, so what happened at the Shakespeare's Head, what sort of figures and characters would convene there well the Shakespeare's Head was one
2: of many establishments not unlike, well, well kind of not unlike, but a lot unlike where we're sitting now, which is, you know, I mean, recently we've seen, you know, the resurgence of the coffee house. But um, in the 18th century, you know, so much drinking and carousing and exchange, both intellectual you know, in terms of sexual commerce happened in coffee houses. And Covent Garden was full of coffee houses. Covent Garden was full of taverns. Covent Garden was full of a variety of these, these sort of places of resort where you could go into private rooms and your club could meet or you could, you know, have a, a private dinner with a prostitute
1: or, you know, any sort of thing like it that. It's like the bustling district. It is. And there were brothels. Pizza, so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. And... Let's talk about the pimp general, mm. who is Jack Harris. Jack Harris. Now, Jack Harris, I believe, would be one of the figures who you would find at the Shakespeare's Head. Oh,
2: yeah. Jack Harris was what was called the head waiter at
1: the Shakespeare's Head. Okay. okay, so he—that's where yeah. he began, right? Yeah, okay. that's where
2: he, that's where he began. So, so I mean, the thing is, a lot of people are really surprised by. Like, oh my God! In the past, they had pimps. You know, think that this is this is something that's a completely new concept it just wasn't at all and it's really interesting that the evolution of the pimp came from somebody who also waited tables Mm -hmm. because you know a man would come to your table and he'd say what would you like sir and they say well you know bring me some bring me some whiskey and bring me some ale and and actually bring me a woman and what Jack Harris would then do is he'd open this massive ledger and he had this huge ledger and it was apparently rumoured to be the biggest ledger, biggest pimp's ledger in all of London. It was like 400 <laughs> women's names on it. And he said, well, what would Sir like? You know, like, would Sir like the Sauvignon Blanc, the South African Sauvignon Blanc? It's, it's like, you know, would Sir like a blonde, you know, a short blonde with a large bottom? I'm would
1: sure. Sir it like... Sounds like a cocktail, maybe? Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. You know, would Sir like a tall brunette with freckles? You know, with Sir, like, you know, a, a kind of 14-year-old uh, who just has lost her virginity. And believe me, that was very much on the menu. And and the men would choose, and then he would send a runner out, a boy out, to go to this woman's address, or wherever she happened to be, and bring her to the Shakespeare's head for the math. Okay,
1: and this... Book, this ledger, turned yes. into a hotly sought after book,
2: book called Well, okay, it it Harris's list evolved out of a, a sort of the necessity of a poor Irish poet who was down and out on his luck in London. And his name was Sam Derrick, and he came to London hoping to be a playwright. And unfortunately he was absolutely an appalling playwright and apparently he wanted to be an actor and he was an appalling actor and he ended up getting into debt but one of the reasons why he ended up getting into debt because any money he earned through bits of writing that he did he, he basically spent on wine, women and song and so he had sampled all of these women in Covent Garden and um, he ended up going to debtor's prison or he ended up going to what was called the sponging house which was a pre-debtor's prison and he came upon this idea, well, you know, why don't I kind of commercialise the Harris's list? And I'll make the entries a little bit more poetic, or add in a little bit more a little bit more narrative than maybe Jack Harris has in 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 his version of his ledger. So it makes for nice reading and it's titillating and it's erotic. And so he did this, and he got an advance, and he was literally sprung out of debtor's prison on the back of
1: this. It's amazing. So it's the little yellow pages of, of it, the it, prostitute yes. network in London. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So as part of our route, we're actually going to go to one of the addresses that is mentioned yes. in Harris's list, which still survives today, which is really exciting. So you can, if you're listening at home, you can actually go and see this. Uh, address. I know exactly who lived there in uh, the eighteenth, nineteenth century. In the eighteenth century. century. Okay, fabulous. So let's head over to forty-six Frith Street. Wonderful. Okay. okay. So we are at number forty-six Frith Street, and this is pretty cool because you've just discovered <laughs> that this is actually okay. Ronnie, Scott's. Ronnie Scott's jazz club. And little do. Maybe, maybe Ronnie Scots do know that... uh, They probably
2: don't know, because... um, Who lived here? So, in 1788, there was a prostitute who lived here by the name of Madame Dufleu. And Madame Dufleu was a French émigré. um, And the building, from what we can see, I mean, I'm not an architectural historian, I mean, obviously, the building has gone through uh, looks like a couple of iterations, at least in the facade, but it was, you can still see that it has some original Georgian features and brickwork. But it seems that Madame de lived here, at least in 1788. She may have moved on somewhere else uh, afterwards. But um, she appears in the Harris's List, and I'm going to read you her entry. Madame de number 46, Fifth for Street, Soho. It is only six months since this lady has left her native country and at present speaks very little English. She is young and lively, but still does not seem to possess so much vivacity as the majority of her countrywomen. She loves to avenge her countrymen's cause on the English by doing what most valorous Frenchmen would never affect, that is, to bring Britons on their knees. She is now 22, rather short and fat with a plump face and such a roguish leer in her eye that she cannot be resisted. Several of our brave officers have spent some time, some of their best blood, in her service and regretted they had no more to shed. Her lovely dark hair seems like a net to catch lovers and her lower tendrils, which sport on her alabaster mount of Venus, are formed to give delight. She has one qualification which many English girls want, which is a certain cleanliness in the Netherlands. They are contented to wash their faces, their necks and their hands, but Mademoiselle, like many of her countrywomen, thinks that not enough. She performs constant ablutions on the gulf of pleasure and keeps it constantly fresh, cool and clean, never putting a morsel into that mouth till she has fully absturged every possible remnant of the last meal. She constantly mounts her b-day, and with a large sponge laves the whole extent of the parish of the Mother of All Saints.' Some may, perhaps, think her a female spy or a smuggler, but surely a girl who so freely discloses her own secrets can have no improper aim at those of government. She dresses quite in the French style and taste and lays on a profusion of rouge and pearl powder and is not particularly partial to money, but will condescend to take a couple of guineas, not as payment, but solely as un gage d'amour.
1: Oh, he's very poetic, as Jack yeah. Harris, isn't he? He's sort yes, yes, this Irresistible yes. temptress who lived yes. at uh, what was
2: Ronnie Scott's. Well, I mean, well, first of all, I think it's important to say at this point, Sam Sam Derrick, yeah. who was writing it in in the seventeen um, fifties and and sixties, had died by this stage, okay. and so we don't know who the oh, right. editor okay, was right. okay. for the later editions. And so this was, as I said, seventeen eighty eight, and I mean, you know, it's very poetic, as you said, but. There's some other really interesting things about this. It's not just... I mean, this is wonderful as a guidebook because, you know, men will say, oh, wow, this is, you know, a kind of hot babe who lives at number 46. I'll go around and and see her. But it tells you a lot more about her. Obviously, it tells you that she's French, gives you a sense of what she looked like, how old she was. But it also gives you an idea of... You know what she was like, kind of as a person, like her style of dress. And it's quite interesting this date they give, which is 1788, which is, of course, the year before the French Revolution. And so, what they're kind of alluding to here is so we get a real sense of what the British think of the French, even mm. in this entry which is, you know, this is the height of the Ancien Regime, so like all the worst excesses of of, of the French aristocracy, of the court you know, which people emulated and you know, obviously prostitution and like licentious uh, sex was thought to be, you know, all part of, of what the, you know, ancien regime indulged in. You know, this is all kind of wrapped up in Madame de Fleur You know, the fact that she dresses in the French style, she uses something called pearl powder in her hair, which is a kind of a sparkly white powder made from ground pearls. You know, so there's this allure, but also she uses a bidet and that was something that the French really made use of in in the 18th century. And in fact, lovers would buy each other like, you know, kind of gold days. Really? Yes. Yes, so this is all, you know, she's very exotic. She's, you know, she's interesting. And it's also worth mentioning at this time, you know, the Harris's lists are filled with women from other countries. And, you know, London was absolutely an international city. I mean, we have women from... Literally all over. I mean, all over Europe, the Americas, even you know the West Indies, um, uh, and um, and also women from all over the British Isles. Lots and lots of Irish women who came here. Um, So you know, all of this is reflected in the Harris's list, and it gives helps to give us when we read these lists a real sense of how diverse the experience living in London as a woman, in terms of sex, in terms of all of these things, how diverse this experience actually was.
1: Madame Duclos, how do you think she would have come to become a... Prostitutes in London? Oh, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I mean,
2: I think it's kind of alluded to in this entry, which is it talks about, you know, she's she's a particular favourite of of kind of officers. A lot of women like this would have come, I mean, prior to the French Revolution, but a lot of women would have come as, sometimes as mistresses, or as servants, and then you know, men get tired of them and they, they... they basically get rid of them mm. and a lot of times the only option available for women was prostitution and 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 that was you know, that's how they entered into it, you know, if they had lost their character by being a man's mistress, you know, it was almost impossible to go back into domestic service yeah. or something like that
1: As we stand here outside Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club formerly Madame McClose residence I'm just looking across the road and Bang opposite. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart lived Absolutely, and played yeah. and composed here when she was living here. Yeah, yeah. They could have crossed well, each other in the street. Well, we did. It said uh, a, a house on the site in 1764
2: to five. So that's that's kind of 20 years before. Oh, it is okay. But but still, but. Really, that's a really important point, though, because there's this kind of intersection, again, between prostitution and the arts and yes. entertainment and all of these things. They were much of a much... much you know, we think of, like, for example, the 19th century, um, uh, La Boheme, you know, and then that's Paris, and, but, the, you know, there is this intersection between these classes of people. It's also really important to mention at this time that Soho was not the centre of sex London. And in fact, there was no bona fide red light district as such. So you had normal people living cheek by jowl yeah. with prostitutes all levels in all neighborhoods, whether it was Soho or whether it was Mayfair.
1: So this area was not necessarily sort of the buzzing sort of shop type hub that we see today. It was actually quite domestic. It maybe. was it was very
2: I mean it was very middle class. Okay. It was it was um, um, lower middle class middle class if you go into Soho Square Soho Square there were quite a lot of very wealthy people lived in Soho Square and golden Square as well um, and and wherever you had wealthy people or middle class people you also had prostitutes living next door or within those same what do you think people responded to that do you think that these prostitutes were snubbed by were, certain people it's a very mixed bag um, I mean it's it's such the 18th century 18th century london's Um, engagement with prostitution is so complex because, you know, the the line, the party line that's given is, oh, well, you know, this is completely unacceptable and, and, you know, we don't engage with this stuff, but it's not true at all. In fact, it was very much a part of lower middle class life. A lot of women ended up in prostitution because they just simply, they didn't have dowries to marry well. And so this was a type of concubinage
1: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
1: So we talk about Madame Duflo. I mean, she had a roof over her head. Whereas, uh, were there sort of a very working-class prostitutes who, who... lived around the same area who perhaps lived in some relative squalor. Yeah, it's,
2: again, I think one of the things that is important to mention is that, you know, for all the different ranks of society there were different ranks of prostitute and different ranks of brothel as well. So, um... You know, if you were extremely wealthy and titled and well-connected, you might go to one of the brothels on King's Place, which is in St. James. And you were, you know, treated like royalty, because in many cases you were. And then there were a number of middle-ranking brothels, you know, in places like Soho, in Covent Garden, in Marlebone, in all of these areas. And then there were the lower-ranking brothels, in, in places like Saffron Hill, in Southwark, down by the docks for the very poor.
1: And what if you were lucky enough to sort of find yourself a patron? He'd put you up in a house sort of similar to this, kind of thing?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so okay, so one of the most, I mean, the ideal situation to find yourself in as a woman was to be put in what was called keeping. So you have a patron who falls in love with you, basically wants to set you up as a, as a mistress. If you are in a brothel, he, he basically buys you out of the brothel. And then he will pay the rent for you in a set of lodgings. It could be in Soho, it could be in Mayfair. You know, I mean, you could be, like, literally... You know, if you were a titled lady, the woman living next door to you could be your husband's
1: friend's mistress.
2: And, you know, people people just got on with it.
1: It was just quite a social norm, basically. It
2: was a social norm, and we tend to think that, oh, my God, it was completely socially unacceptable. But, you know, what we know as historians is what, you know what is paid lip service to and the way in which people actually behaved are two totally different things so if you look in documentation if you look in letters if you look in court records if you look in memoirs you see what actually people did as opposed to you know if you read a novel from the time and you know henry fielding says x is totally unacceptable or samuel richardson says you know you know Clarissa has to die because she's lost her virginity you know yeah. it's things like that you know the, the, the nuances in society about how they looked at fallen women you know it's just completely it's very very complex
1: and it's very easy for us to place our modern values onto these things onto the idea of a mistress but actually it, had, it they have no place in history that, really. That really really absolutely not and in fact
2: I mean the other thing is you know prostitution could be utterly horrible Yeah, and and we can't we can't underplay this, you know, I mean, women were owned by men. But the sister abused by and men. Abused like, by like men and abused by men. prostitutes, but some women were raped. Absolutely. Were and in fact, in fact, I mean, in the 18th century and even in the 19th century, there was a very, very fine line between what was called rape and seduction. You know, because women in the 18th century particularly and in the 19th century were the weaker sex and so they weren't thought to be sexually aggressive and women always had to say no and men always had to say yes because that's how men prove their masculinity. So, you know, even if a woman was consenting, you know, it it almost didn't matter because it was about a man proving himself, leaving his stamp on the woman, you know, and a woman always has to pretend that she doesn't want it even if she did because the only woman who would want
1: it would be a whore. Which is arguably issues that are still being raised today. Absolutely, the like
2: two movement. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. It's this stuff. is runs so yeah. deep, and that's it's why really it's so deep. important historically to explore this. Like where did this stuff come from? You know, a lot of this stuff we think is is just kind of spontaneously generated mm. in you know today in our own discourses. It's not. It's been yeah, we're, as women, we're challenging
1: very deep-rooted yeah, assertions about femininity yeah. and women's rights to their bodies. Yeah. And you know what what is acceptable for men to, to do for yeah. the women to treat women these yeah. days it's yeah yeah changing fast and yeah. you know if we think this is we're talking about you know 200 years ago if you think about how much has changed in the space of 200 years it's enormous yeah
2: yeah it, it really has in terms of women's opportunities yeah. and things like that i mean there there were no professional opportunities for women women couldn't train other than in apprenticeships where, you know, somebody had to pay for you to go and do an apprenticeship with a milliner or a glove maker or, you know, any number of these. These A lot of them were textile-related mm. trades and... Ladies' jobs. Ladies' jobs or, you know, or you would go into domestic service. But there, there was nothing... Women's work was not designed to support a woman because women were not meant to be independent entities. Women were meant to marry, and men were meant to marry. I mean, the, the idea that men and women wouldn't marry would just be almost totally inconceivable to the people who lived in the 18th and 19th century. You know, it's just, you know, men needed women and women needed
1: men. So, Hallie, we are going to move on. We're going to go over to what was the Argyll Argyle rooms, which is Great Windmill Street, and Haymarket was yeah. the centre of prostitution. Haymarket's still a hugely buzzing centre yeah. of like, tourism, these really days, isn't it?
2: So we're going to move a little bit further in time. We're going to move into the early to mid-19th century and, and go check out what were the Argyll rooms. Fantastic.
1: We're now on, on German Street, which is more towards Green Park. So we've got some of the... Um, higher end shops and things around here we've got the Christie's auction house is very close by so this place is notoriously a more wealthy area so we wouldn't necessarily associate that with prostitution oh you would if you knew what I did <laughs>
2: um you know as
1: I was saying a bit
2: earlier this idea that like somehow you know there's a, a red light district in London it's just completely wrong um and this was the case really in the 18th century in the 19th century I mean as we know, Piccadilly, the Haymarket, Regent Street—all associated with, with with prostitution. I mean, now it's it's very posh. I mean, in the 18th century, it was posh. In the 18th century, on German Street, there was a very famous madam who was who had been the mistress of the Earl of Sandwich, and he set her up in a townhouse here. And her name was Harriet Lewis, and she was black, and she made a fortune. She kind of. You know there was this sort of exoticism of the fact that you know she was black and she was uh, offering other women who were black as well. So men would come here to to experience an exotic treat. But also this even later, there are affiliations with the sex trade. So we have like first of all, there are a number there are a reason why we have in this area a number of fish restaurants and oyster bars and places like Wilton's. It's because amongst the night houses where people would go, you know, the things that they would do after the Argyle Room's shut, a lot of people would go for champagne and oysters in this general area. So that's a reason why, you know, there are these, these places that are still here. So that imprint of, of how this area was used in the past is still with us today. But
1: considered to be really fancy but it to was go fa- it was eat.
2: fancy, it was fancy then. I mean that's the thing. So, like all up and down, okay. So if we think of the restaurants in this area, especially the restaurants that were in the Haymarket, on Regent Street, these were all places where men would take the mistresses. So there was a place called uh the St. James's Restaurant on St. James's Street, which is just on the corner there, and that was called Jimmy's. And um Jimmy's was really famous, you know. Again, it's one of these kind of mirrored palm fronded places that you would go with your mistress and you would go and you'd eat roast beef and you know and you'd drink claret and and hock you know they drank a lot of hock in the 19th century what was hock? it's a white wine from Germany and if you were a higher class prostitute, part of what you would do if you were looking for custom, is to kind of patrol these restaurants and these cafes around this area. And you'd go and you'd sit down, and you know you'd see if there was anybody you knew or if a gentleman approached you. you know, a single woman out in the evening was assumed to be available. And we are actually standing out right now in front of the Cavendish Hotel. And um, the original Cavendish wasn't wasn't here; it was on the corner of Duke Street. Um, but it, it, the corner of Duke Street and German Street and it was run by a woman called Rosa Lewis and um, what does Rosa Lewis have to, have to do with any of this well Rosa Lewis interestingly started her life as a, a gourmet cook and she became one of the first female celebrity chefs in in history in the 19th century and she was brought independently into people's houses for big banquets and things like that. So she was really favoured by the Marlborough set, for example, Lord Randolph Churchill and the Prince of Wales, Bertie. And so she opened, uh, she became the proprietor of, of this hotel, the Cavendish, in 1902, which she ran with her husband, Excelsior Lewis, who was, um, it wasn't really a love match, but the Prince of Wales, well, who was in 1902, was Edward VII at that time, would come and she would kind of sort him out with his, his mistress. And so this became, a lot of people said it was kind of a very upscale, kind of accommodation house, really, because Rosa Lewis would turn a blind eye and, you know, men would come here for assignations and she catered to them and it had a very dodgy reputation, but it was very, very elite.
1: Okay, so we've actually come into Wilton's oyster and champagne bar, which is pretty much what they did at the end of their night. That's right. It's a bit early for that. It's a little bit early. It's what it's five thirty, but you know that's okay. Yes.
2: <laughs> and Wilton's was one of the the sorts of restaurants that we we discussed, where people would go in, um, you know, after after a night of dancing and, and carousing. And would come in and have champagne and oysters. And oysters at this time, it's really important to uh, to, to, to mention were actually the, the food of the poor. I mean, really throughout the, the kind of eighteenth and nineteenth century. Um, and um, and the oysters themselves were kind of loss leader to get people in. They were kind of served as tapas, or like we're looking right now at a, a bowl of olives and a bowl of nuts, and um, that would get people in mm. to consume more drink. So to consume more champagne, and then they'd have oysters as, as as nibbles on the side. Wiltons has been around for many years. It started in the 18th century as a, as an oyster barrel cart, um, and then they actually were originally based in 1840 on Ryder Street. But again, that's very much in the centre of of this kind of whirl of pleasure in the 19th century.
1: So this is one of the the sort of smarter venues, and this actually is more representative of the sort of higher class prostitutes. And as we were talking about earlier, the whole concept of prostitution can be quite glamorised, and it can be over-glamorised, and made to feel like it's something that is almost... um, Enjoyable, like this this lifestyle, so to speak, you know, expensive clothes, um, wealthy patrons, being able to spend your evenings in oyster and champagne bars. Mm. But that actually, even with sort of the more um, the wealthier prostitute, that really wasn't the case. And I mean, you have some you have some wonderful contemporary material from time, which really does demonstrate that. Yeah,
2: it's it's really interesting. I mean, you know, women's fortunes could rise as well as fall on the back of prostitution as, as we mentioned earlier and this is a wonderful quote from Henry Mayhew from his extremely extensive investigations into how the London poor and working classes lived their lives in in the middle of the uh, 19th century Um, and Mayhew went around London he interviewed all sorts of people of all different walks of life who were working in London and he he interviewed a number of, of prostitutes as well and one of them talks about her life doing all of the things that we've been describing Again, this is, you know, the 1850s. is the height of, of the popularity of, of this particular area for prostitution. I'm going to read this quote. So the woman says, When I am sad, I drink. A woman once said to us, I'm very often sad, although I appear to be what you call reckless. Well, we don't fret that we might have been ladies because we never had a chance of that, but we have forfeited a position nevertheless, and when we think that we have fallen, never again to regain that which we have descended from, and in some cases sacrificed everything for a man who has ceased to love and deserted us, we get mad." The intensity of this feeling does not wear off a little after the first, but there's nothing like gin to deaden the feelings. What are my habits? Why, if I have no letters or visits from any of my friends, I get up about four o'clock and dress and dine. After that, I may walk about the streets for an hour or two and pick up anyone I am fortunate enough to meet. That is if I want money. Afterwards, I go to Holborn and dance a little bit, and if anyone likes me, I take him home with me. If not, I go to the Haymarket and wander from cafe to another, from Sally's to the Carlton, from Barnes to Sam's. And if I find no one there, I go, if I feel inclined, to the divans. I like the Grand Turkish best, but you don't, as a rule, find good men in any of the divans. Strange things happen to us sometimes. We may now and then die of consumption. But the other day, a lady friend of mine met a gentleman at Sam's, and yesterday morning they were married at St. George's Hanover Square. The gentleman has lots of money, I believe, and he started off with her at once for the continent. It is very true that this is an unusual case, but we do often marry, and we do marry well. Well, why shouldn't we? We are pretty, we dress well, we can talk and insinuate ourselves into the hearts of men by appealing to their passions and their senses. Wow. There's something
1: so timelessly emotive about that. Incredibly. In her own words. Yeah. It's really powerful. And there's just this sense of anger, of hope, Mm. of loss. Yeah. But also just sort of acceptance of her fate, so to speak. And I think that it really, that that quote really summarises all of the different things that we've talked about yes. throughout this podcast, you know, these women who who are reliant on drink, they're reliant on gin, they're also reliant on, on well, basically reliant on men yeah, to be able completely. to exist, yeah. but also reliant on that sense of hope, the fact that her friends are, you know, she, she did actually get, she married. Did get married, she found somebody, she mm. found somebody to rescue her, and there's this, this sort of desire to be rescued, mm. and... Oh it's really yeah it's really it's really moving. amazing isn't
2: it yeah really yeah, moving
1: really moving definitely but it's something that I think that is so um, any woman or any man who would read that can totally relate to and that is what is so important to bring alive mm. in when you when you do, do walk around these areas yeah. Yeah. um to so bring you know, and bring history to life to be able to connect with people to be able to connect with those emotions exactly exactly and and you know
2: i mean history's not just first of all you know, history is the architecture, it's where things happened, it's the geography it's, you know, it's the larger issues at play, but I certainly, what I find extremely fascinating is the micro it's what happened in the individual's lives what happened to this particular woman—it's the experience of being alive in another time period—and I do think that definition of history tends to be overlooked quite a lot. And I think it's a shame because you know we lose it in you know the sort of concept of the grand panorama. of, You know, we must look at wars, and we must look at statesmen, and we must look at you know monarchs. But you know, in the midst of all of that, there is this experience of 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 this woman and people like this who led very colourful, interesting lives that reflect so much on our human experience even
1: today. And we can connect with far more than we can connect with the monarchy. Yeah. Or yeah. we can connect with, you know, war. Yes. In, in, yes. In it's, it's
2: life on a very human, very basic level, which you are of you
1: dedicated your career to working towards, so yes, the most part? So you have. So, if you, if if those listening, if you want to read more about this, then please do go out and buy Hallie's book, <laughs> the *Garden Ladies*, because you go into so much detail. Yes, um, and it's just so fascinating. It's such a lively read. But also, you're working on. You've moved into the 19th century yes. a little bit more, yes. and you are working on a history of of
2: the five victims of jack the ripper and that will be out in early march 2019 and it's called the five and it's about the lives of these women some of whom were
1: prostitutes some of whom were not but that's very controversial and i'm sure that you will be coming back on the podcast to talk about that i hope so (laughs) anyway we are going to enjoy our champagne shall we raise a glass shall we
2: raise a glass to all the women who tread these streets in the 18th and 19th centuries
1: well said Cheers, cheers.